welcome you to Rocks On Podcast. Um, for everyone knows who Ian Reid is. Ian Reid was the Rocks owner from right at the start through till, what was it, Ian, 2006? Yeah, a couple of years ago. Um, so, we wanted to talk about like your tenure at the Rocks. Um, why? Oh, we're going to go run through all the coaches. Um, different. Hopefully, you've got some good stories and different things. But also, one thing I'd like to start with was why Rocks as a name. So that's the first one I'd like to start with. Yeah. Um, why the Rocks? Okay, so the Rocks was started started off in Edinburgh, and right slap bang in the middle of Edinburgh is a gigantic volcanic rock. And we um, thought that would be a good name, but we put it out to the fans as, well, we didn't have any fans at that stage, but we put it out on such media as was available to us at that time. I think we ran a competition in the evening news um, on the name, and we'd already chosen the rocks, but a significant number of other people um, came up with it too, whether by design or accident, I don't know, but it became the rocks. Um, and that was the history of it from Edinburgh, really. So what made what made you get into basketball, or maybe touch upon what was your background before basketball? Yeah, um, well, I, I suppose what got us into basketball, got me into basketball, was that um, I'd always had an interest in sport, I'd always had an interest in events, and um, at one stage, I organised the world's largest sponsored swim, which was in the Guinness Book of Records for a number of years. And then I organised the um, an international investment congress in Edinburgh, Europe's largest investment investment congress. And then we got involved in the fringes of clubs, um, house music, and that sort of stuff. And originally, the I suppose the genesis of the journey towards having a basketball franchise was the fact that we liked music, we liked sport, and we looked at the uh, Edinburgh Claymores, or the Scottish Claymores, I can't remember what they're called, the American football team anyway. Yeah, and they were they were pulling in crowds of about 20,000 every Sunday um, at um, Murrayfield. Uh, so I went along primarily to speak to them with the, the organised backlot parties, we went along to them and primarily with the idea of introducing a, a dance tent where we could have house music pre and post game and sell some alcohol and have fun. Um, but on looking at the crowd that went to those games, we said, that's not quite our target audience. We got talking to them and we said, well, what do you like? We like street music, we like, we like hip hop, we like fun, we like young people, we like fashion, we like all these sort of things. Well, that's basketball. So we went and had a look at basketball. At that time, the, there were low barriers to entry. It wasn't a hugely expensive business to get into. Our biggest challenge was the fact that um, we did have a basketball team. Most teams in the league had come up through lower divisions to yeah. form the British Basketball League and here were we, um, three people from Edinburgh, said, I want to join the league. So there's a bit of due diligence to be done there, Grant. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's how it all got started. I was fortunate enough to get the finance in place within about 24 hours once I started to go with it, uh, with two fellow enthusiasts. Um, 
I'd say, enthusiasts for sport um, and for the whole concept. And they stuck with it for a good number of years and then I carried it on. So, obviously, Edinburgh only reels itself to Meadowbank. Um, was Meadowbank always going to be a facility long term or was there always kind of a move potentially down the line as well? Um, Edinburgh is certainly the home of the rocks and we, we had no intentions of moving. Uh, the, the move came in after a year or two when, they began, when the council began to talk about what fee, the next phases of Edinburgh uh, Meadowbank were to be. And those plans didn't seem to include a facility that the rocks would be able to play out of. So at that stage, we started to look around for somewhere new. Um, and then fortuitously, we, we were approached by Brayhead in Glasgow. They were building a big shopping centre. And to enable the planning permission at Brayhead, they needed to introduce some sport. And to introduce some sport, they built an arena. And then, of course, they needed... Um, anchor organisations to be in there. So the first approach I think they had was to the ice hockey team and then they gave us a sweetheart deal to come through um, and transfer the franchise, which was well established by that stage, to Glasgow. Um, and that's why we moved, basically. There was no future at Meadowbank for us. So Glasgow looked good. It was a nice arena. And a good deal. Your first season, Jim Brandon's coaching. I think that's a good link, obviously, to potentially the new season that his one of his sons yeah. the Rocks Ross and the Rocks team. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. Um, so, what was it like from having like Meadowbank for the venue? Um, I would never made a game at Meadowbank, but yeah. Okay, so um, I think e- even pre Jim Brandon, there's an interesting story there too. That the first person we ever approached to become a, a, the Rocks coach was a certain Nick Nurse, <laughs> who's done quite well since being NBA Coach of the Year. Um, uh, and he, he's done magnificently. And just It's interesting to me to think how different his life could have been had he joined the Rocks, <laughs> uh, where it would all have ended up. But um, Nick was great, and he was on the cusp of signing when a group came in from America um, to invest in Manchester and the Manchester Arena and Manchester Giants with the avowed intention of winning the BBL playoffs, uh, which they which they did with Nick in charge and did very well. And within half an hour of Manchester Giants winning the playoffs, they went to the team and Nick and said, OK, we've done what we came here to do. We're abandoning ship now. And they sailed off into the Blue Horizon. And that was quite a strange time because a number of us who were in the know knew actually if the Giants won that they were going to fold so that was kind of tricky and an introduction to just how fickle investors and sport can be but then along came Jim and we were like Jim's um, CV because he had the reputation of developing young British players, young English players and he introduced some really good players to Sheffield and developed them. And they were the mainstay of that Sheffield team who, who were dominant in the league at that time for a number of years. So that, that, that's where the gym connection came in. Because I think he was also the one that brought, obviously, Ted Berry to the Rocks. Um, I think second season. Yeah. In that second season as well, he then had, obviously, uh, John McCord as well. But 
So how did obviously Ted come to Edinburgh, Scotland, all begin? Because I know he was at Derby before, but what was it like having someone yeah. of Ted's quality? Yeah, um, well, at that stage, it's hard to, to believe there was actually uh, there were transfers between teams for cash money. So we we would heard that Ted was quite good and Jim was quite excited about him. So we actually paid Derby a transfer fee to get Ted. So I think from memory that the fee was about five thousand pounds, something like that. It's quite a lot of money, really. Uh, so, but it turned out to be the best investment we'd ever made. He, Ted, and the Rocks and the, the Reed family are sort of tied together in one sort of fairy tale story. And we're still friendly with Ted, and um, we love him dearly. So, and he's still in touch with family. That's amazing because he was obviously there for a long time. Played under obviously Jim Brown, yeah. and then obviously moved with yeah. you to Glasgow. So it was then after I think Jim Brandon was there for two years. Then uh, ill-fated Greg Lottridge years, uh, <laughs> yeah. and then obviously yeah, um, you'd like to say something about that, would you? Yeah, yeah. I just reminiscing though. Interestingly, the first game that the Rocks ever played was against London Towers, as they then were. In, in London, and we lost that game by one point in a buzzer beater by Malcolm Lake. That's indelibly um, printed in my mind. The, just the ups and the downs and the excitement of it all. Um, and um, it was just so rocks to be winning until the last few seconds, and then oops, Can't it's gone. So then anyway, Jim moved on, and Greg Lockridge appeared. He did on paper, he had a really good CV. Um, but he he was an, I don't know what I'm saying, but yeah, but he was an unusual character. Um, he got quite angry at times, and when he subbed a player out, they used to take the player to the sidelines and during the game turn his back on the game and harangue and lecture the player quite severely, whilst ignoring what was going on in court, which was um, unusual form of coaching. But he also had some um, some challenges um, off court, um, and they manifested themselves in Meadowbank officials saying that he was only allowed into the arena for one hour pre-game and had to leave immediately afterwards. So that wasn't ideal. Um, so we had a chat with Greg, and it was decided he would move on and. Um, and in his absence, Ian McLean stepped into the breach, and he did it. He he did a great job with a very difficult group of players. Really, yeah. Um, I can remember one case at um, half time. Ian walked out of the arena, and the players walked to the dressing room. I followed Ian. I said, "What's going on?" And he said, "Well, there's no point in speaking to them. Don't listen to me anyway." So. We got over that bit, uh, and I thought with highest regard for Ian, uh, he did well. He was very professional, and I think he, and I'm sure he would have been a good full-time coach for the Rocks. We did a good job in, in industry, so quite rightly to think about the long-term future. Ian came back. I think Ross Hutton as well, and he came back and did some coaching when Sterling had to go home for stuff as well. So great to see, obviously, Bill still so. In, Touch with the franchise as well. Yeah, yeah. So then after that, Kevin Wall comes in. Uh, you've got one more season in Edinburgh, and then the move over to Glasgow. Um, yes. 
how would you, just touching back on Meadowbank, how would you say the crowd was, like numbers wise, like what was Meadowbank kind of known as in the league? Meadowbank was actually amazing. Uh, it was a great atmosphere with a very, very supportive crowd. Uh, television was Sky Television was big in those days too, so we had good exposure. Um, Sky would come up with three Pantechnicans and, and the just all the equipment under the sun, clunky stuff from the olden days. But they would come up a day in advance. They would put vinyl down on the floor. It would make it look great. They did the commentary. They built a commentary box. It was just just amazing. And, and one of the best games at Meadow Bank was the, the first game that the Rocks won at home, yeah. which um, was, a, a, again, a buzzer beater. And I was sitting next to Mike Smith, um, the chief executive of the lead, of the league at that time, and he's towards the end of the game, just in the, the dying hours of the game, he said, the crowd are getting quite excited, you know, I hope, I hope they're not going to do anything silly. And they didn't. But as soon as the, as soon as the final whistle buzzer went, um, one of our directors ran straight onto the court. I remember saying afterwards, um, I was on the court, I was running towards the player, and then, and then I thought, oh my goodness, the game has finished, hasn't it? And it had... And he charged all the players, and they all hugged him. And the fans followed him. So there's a, a mass invasion. And during all of this hugging and jumping about, the players actually broke our director's ribs, and he was in agonies for agony for days after. But um, anyway, that was that was good. I think I seen it on YouTube. So that game still, or that buzzer beer, anyways, on YouTube somewhere. So yeah, I want to or something to check out. So obviously, Edinburgh came to an end. Um, First year in Glasgow, Kevin Wall's there. So probably the year before, I think the last year in Edinburgh, we had Ryan Huntley as well. So when did you think, or did you ever think that moving to Glasgow in that first season would end up being like a, a run to the playoff finals, winning the champion, or winning the playoffs as well? Or No, no. I, I was terrified of going to the playoffs because it, it looked scary. You know, I'd seen the other teams there and the other owners. And I thought, no, nah, that's not for us. That's not going to happen. Um, but strangely enough, it did. It was a double-edged sword because um, we also won the playoffs. The fans, the fan base in, in Glasgow said, oh, this is what happens every year. And strangely <laughs> enough, it doesn't happen every year. No, it has never happened since, but that, that was a good run, great run. So what, what do you think was like, obviously other than the obvious challenge of the audience, what was the biggest challenge, do you think, uh, Rocks? you guys as a family all face with that kind of move through from Edinburgh to Glasgow with only maybe being a four-year-old franchise as such? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest chance for us was at one stage, you know, personally, at one stage we thought we could um, manage the franchise from Edinburgh. We were well established, you know, a good a good life in Edinburgh. Um, that didn't turn out to be practical, in all honesty. Um, so we, we moved lock, stock and barrel through to, through to Glasgow and I've never really regretted that um, because the rocks, as you may know, as, as you do know, um, sit side by side or at that stage sat side by side with the charity Scottish Sports Futures and there was an amazing amount of work that needed to be done and was done in partnership with other organisations with Scottish Sports Futures in, in the city. So it was it was as receptive as 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 anywhere really. It was, it was good. It you was just, good. You've just touched on SSF. So where where was that idea born from? Um, how did that all start? And then obviously you see what you created it into now. 
Uh, I know Mrs. Reed likes to tell the story of her and uh, Billy Singleton trying to get kids in for Twilight, but um, so the the idea was born out of um, I'd see I'd seen the players interacting with young kids, and I'd seen that the young kids were so receptive to these guys. Um, they're sort of larger than life, um, and the Americans in particular were, were charismatic sort of guys um, who were able to put across messages to the young people. So we approached Scotland Against Drugs and said, look, I think these guys could do something in, in the community um, with messages, anti-drugs messages. So it was kind of born out of that. Um, the research that fell out of that particular programme, which we funded ourselves, um, Scotland Against Drugs funded the research and the research was amazing and Scottish Sports Futures was really built out of that um, and that's how in Scotland the Sport for Change movement was born really we were in the wilds of Easter House and there was myself, my wife and Ross Hutton and we'd got a fair amount of money from Lloyd's Trustee Savings Bank's foundation to run this and one guy turned up, one guy. And we thought this is a disaster. But it, it went on from strength to strength. And um, working with the community is quite interesting because we were getting good crowds to Twilight Basketball. And what we didn't realize because we weren't from that locality was that kids um, who previously wouldn't cross territorial lines, um, of which there were many in Glasgow, um, were crossing the territorial lines and playing with kids from the other side of the territories to um, play together. And so that was a good integration thing. It was great. Really good. I think that's kind of what the all for sport and change in Scotland's been. And I suppose also kind of good kudos for you guys that a lot of other sports charities, governing bodies, sports clubs have kind of used your template and trying to run with it because of how successful it's been. So I suppose yeah. that hope a, a double-edged sword, it's been great kind of for you. It's been great. It's, it's not a double-edged sword at all. I, I think that um, the more that people do this, the better it is. The better it is for the young people and the better it is for those who are working with them. Going back to that playoff final, uh, playoff run, so in the quarterfinal, mm. it was Chester, or Ch- Chester, what are they known? They were Jets, weren't they, back then? Well, um, yes. Sheffield in the semi-final. Uh, Ted Ted was obviously injured most of that playoff run, but he decided to, to just uh, knock down a pretty last-minute bucket that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that that run, um, I'm fairly proud of saying it was we finished sixth in yes. the league. Um, we on the run we beat the trophy holders, the cup holders, and the champions. So that was quite nice. Um, and. Um, I suppose one of the little secrets from those days was we, the, the semi-finals were played one day and the final was played the next day. And nobody really expected the Rocks to be around for the second day. So we, we hadn't booked hotels for the guys to stay in at night. So as soon as the buzzer went, the staff were buying the curtains, phoning around to try and get a hotel for them to stay in. Um, uh, and if you've watched the, the YouTube of Ted's buzzer beater against um, Sheffield, then he dribbles to the right, I think about seven seconds to go. And he said afterwards, 
he almost lost the dribble. And you can see that he almost lost the dribble. But God bless him, he turned it around and laid it in and the rest is history. Yeah. I suppose you also then look at that. You also, uh, lining up against them were obviously some future Rocks players. Sterling, obviously, for Brighton. That Brighton team was unbelievable when you look at some of the names in there. But obviously, Robbie Anders was at Sheffield. Yes. Uh, and I suppose, I've, I've, I think I sent it to you as well, like the roster for the Rocks, Ted Berry, Billy Singleton, Bill Perry, Stephen Shekels. Yeah. Keith Bunyan, yeah. Tony Gordon, Ryan yeah. Huntley, Sean Kennedy, and obviously Sean Myers, uh, who's probably still playing basketball somewhere in the world. Uh, yeah. I, he, although he did say he was going to train as a plumber because he had long arms and he can reach right, <laughs> right underneath the sink for people. So, um, the, the team you mentioned was, was outstanding. Um, I think we confused Chester, Cheshire, Chester, no, Chester, Chester, right, we were Chester, Chester. We confused them in the first. Um, first playoff game because we had a player called Stefan Shekels who had the best and most elegant three-point shot you've ever seen yeah. and he loved to show it off and in Cheshire, Chester he decided he wasn't going to shoot he started to pass and that was amazing because he, he was good at passing and somehow or other we scraped through that game um, going on to the next round in Sheffield uh, and the Sheffield and the Manchester uh, and the Bright, Brighton games sort of blend into one. But I, I recruited Billy Singleton. I think that's the best recruitment apart from Ted that I ever did um, because Billy's a born winner. He, he was absolutely was a born winner. And he came to the fore. And I knew he'd come to the fore if we made it that far. And he was also good. Uh, <laughs> well, I was laughing about this. He was, he was good. Uh, if we were defending and we got the ball, we could put a long... A long pass because Billy was still trundling back from the last attack, so he, he was in an offside position. But he he used to finish so well, and um, also I think Philip Perry in the final he um, he had a habit. He was a flamboyant player, and he had a habit of if he was in the clear dunking the ball, but dunking and trying to dunk it in such a way that hit the back rim and rebounded to about the halfway line. And at one stage in the, the final, he got the ball. He was in the clear and he was heading towards the basket at speed. And I put my head in my hands and said, oh, no. But God bless him, he just laid it in. So um, later on in the game, he had one of the best blocks I have ever seen, like a windmill. It was fantastic. And the referees called basket interference which is the most outrageous call. Anyway, it ended well. It really ended well. So obviously on that one, um, the majority of the team, obviously, is most season change over the team. Also, obviously, said farewell to Coach Paul and we welcomed in yeah. Swanson, who obviously at the time was Brighton's assistant. Yes. yes. Um, is there any stories there? Was he already involved or was he not? No. Um, I think the, the playoffs were... Um, Chris Finch's last game in the BBL and yeah. uh, Nick Nuss um, said to me after the game, he said, oh, we'd spoken to Steve, um, said, um, I don't fancy being Steve next year because how can you improve in that? But Steve is a very, very methodical, workman-like coach um, and somehow or other he had the knack of persuading us with, to park with just a little bit more money to get another player and another player. Like most coaches, he only needed 
one more player to make the team better. So well, I think we're in the season of the revolving doors. And um, it was unfortunate how it ended with Steve because he had um, interviewed for a job in the States, um, which we, well, we didn't know about. We wouldn't have stood in his way anyway. We couldn't stand in his way. But unfortunately, the news of him departing um, broke on the week of the playoff final. And I, I do think that affected everyone's attitudes in a, in a negative way. I've got to come back to his first season uh, I finished fourth in the league. First round, okay, first round playoff defeat. That was a buzzer beater against Chester. I remember uh, Chester, whoever it was, it was. Uh, it was uh, Terence McGee missed three on the buzzer. We um, lost in the cup final, but the team also had Jerry Williams, who we yeah. get amazing. But also Nicky Arenzi. Yes. Who yes. Went down injured after ten games. I think we were top of the league after those ten games as well. Yeah, Nicky. Nicky was a lovely player, fantastic player, and a really nice guy. Um, and that that was tragic. What happened to him? Really, was it? I think it described as a Rolls Royce of a player. So smooth. Beautiful player. I, uh, you you kind of wonder what would happen. Obviously, Jerry went on to be league MVP. Imagine if yeah. you had Jerry and Nicky the ball. Yeah. Yeah. That's the point. Okay. Uh, uh, so part of Nicky's uh, backstory, his uncle, I think it was, was second in the betting to become the next Pope at one stage. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's awesome. So going on to, I think, just when you're touching it, Steve, Steve, across his three seasons with the Rocks, had a 61% win record. Um, his last season, which you kind of summed up when he was probably looking at moves away, he finished second in the league, playoff, yeah. lost the playoffs, and semi-final and trophy and cup. But his last yeah. season, probably more important, maybe more importantly for now, was Gareth's first season. Yeah. Um, I, he came for the trials. Like, what was that like? Obviously, someone like that, probably the first player to look where he's now gone on to. Well, it's quite interesting because I used to go along to trials and, and, you know, my background isn't in basketball. I've learnt a little bit about it over the last 20 years. <laughs> um, but but I, I didn't know much about basketball. In fact, square root of nothing. Um, the um, the trials, I used to go to trials and I, could, I, I didn't identify Gareth as being outstanding. I, I identified him to make the final cut for sure. Um, but Ross Hutton, um, who was our assistant coach for a while, and Ross, a good friend, and um, knows a lot about basketball, just picked him out straight away and said, that guy, we'll have to have that guy's fundamentals are so sound, amazing. Identified, right, almost from the moment he walked into the gym. He's also not got a bad eye, Ross. He just went on to, he actually got on to play Britain 50 plus times. It's not, not bad, is it? Um, that was also, I think Steve's last season was also the first season with Rob Yanders uh, leading the line. Mm-hmm. Um, what a long time servant he was uh, yes. for the Rocks. So after Steve left after three seasons, you went uh, European with your next coach. Mm. What, was yeah. Thorsten, what was Thorsten like? Thorsten was amazing. Um, and it was a sort of the old boy basketball network that. Um, that, that helped us there. I, I reached out to people to find out who, who, who was good and who was available. And um, it was Chris Finch, who was at that time, I think, coaching in Belgium, suggested we speak to Dawson. I spoke to Dawson with the telephone. Um, and we kind of thought he might come. He had a good pedigree. 
He was assistant at the club he was at in Germany. And um, he hummed and hawed for a while. I think he was hoping to be appointed the head coach. And he wasn't. Um, so he decided he would have to move to become the head coach. So he came to us. And um, uh, we really enjoyed the time we had with Torsten. He was committed. He was matter-of-fact. He was straightforward. Um, he would drop a list of players we should recruit. And if number one was procrastinating, he was out and we went on to number two in the list. And we, we got the team all sorted out early. We got them in early. We got them practicing. And um, we remain friendly with um, Thorson to this day. And he's done well back in Germany too. And he, he, loved, he loved his time in Scotland. Um, he... Um, so, um, so going through that lineup, uh, I think it was on Sterling's podcast he did with uh, UK Basketball Hub. He said that he wasn't obviously initially recruited. He was no. he came up and trained. Um, yeah. Got to be the guy who was cut for him because Sterling hung hung around for a long time. Um, yeah, that yeah. one season, that one season with Thorsten, another two runner-up medals. Um, I wonder what that that must have been up to number four or five yeah. since playoff. Yeah. That Rocks team uh, was Yanders, Sterl, Morris Hampton, Morris Waller, uh, Julius Joseph, Hugo Sterk, and then obviously Gareth um, Murray as well, and a couple other guys. But that that team then kind of stuck around. Obviously, Thorsten moved on. Did, did he go back to? Did he eventually get the German? Yes, he did. And he's quite open about it. He said that that's what he wanted to do. And, and he was also, he enjoyed his time here, but he wouldn't have got the head coach job if he hadn't moved away and been successful. And, you know, he, he, he was just a nice guy. And he, um, if he had a bad result um, and he was brooding about it, he used to drive up to Glencoe and walk about in Glencoe for a wee bit and then come oh, back. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like also, uh, you touched on a player a couple of minutes ago, Philip Perry, but also another one that I think goes quite under the radar in terms of his involvement with the Rocks was Julius Joseph. I think between those yes. two guys, they both were at the Rocks for a good three, four seasons. Um, yeah. I think one year JJ averaged 18 points for the Rocks. I think he was always one of those guys that went under the radar. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were other bigger stars about there was no more consistent. Uh, absolutely not and then obviously um, Thorsten moved on and then all of a sudden Sterling was and his coach so from going from being just a almost a training body at the start he's within a year coach so how did that come about? Yeah I think we're wrong to say that Thorsten was a training body because um, Sterling was a training body because he um, he was eyeing up Europe he, he, he thought he, he would get a, a bigger and better job but of course as we know there's no bigger and better job than playing for the Rocks so um, he stayed, <laughs> and he stayed. Um, but we gave him, uh, it's almost like a poison to chalice, asking a player then to be a player coach, and not only be a player coach, but be be a player coach to the players he has already been playing with for a, a period of time. So it was really difficult for him. And you can see that in the initial initial season, um, that, that there were times when he was struggling with the role, um, but he mastered it, uh, and he mastered it well, and went on, in, in my view, to be a very fine coach. I think he also, I think probably was both good and bad that his first year coach, the decision obviously made to try and retain as many many players as possible, trying to get that seamless um, kind of continuation. I suppose guys like uh, 
Squeaky Hampton went on to have a good career in Europe. I think Moritz Waller might still even be playing in Germany somewhere. Uh, and those guys, in my opinion, are, I have them in my top 10 ever rocks players, those two alone. I would ask more looking at Rob and Sterl and Gareth. So that was a, a good bunch of players in the end. Uh, I'd like to give you um, some information <laughs> um, on how we lost a couple of finals. And it's all about shoes. Oh, you maybe no. heard the story before, but I don't know. Um, oh, okay. In Birmingham, we were down in Birmingham for the fight, one final. I can't remember which one it was. I was still stopped the stayed over stayed overnight in a hotel, and the bus was being loaded up. So chucked all the bags in the back of the bus. Driver came round, slammed down the trunk of the bus, and we drove off to the arena. And when we got off to the off the arena, we were two bags light. Two bags had been stolen from the back of the bus in the time between us putting stuff in and the diver coming around to lock it. So ten o'clock on a Sunday morning, looking for size gazillion <laughs> twenty shoes. It wasn't a good place to be. Um, the two players who lost their bags were Lamont McIntosh and Philip Perry. Lamont said, give me a pair play of shoes, I'll play, it won't happen. Philip had a bit of a meltdown. Um, so that, that was a, a mitigating factor, I would suggest, in uh, getting off to a bad start. A year or two later, I was um, at the curtains um, waiting for the team to come on and a player poked his head around the uh, curtain just before intros and said, Mr. Reid, I can't find my shoes. Um, so um, staff and I ran off to the bus to try and find these shoes and we, we never did find them I don't know what happened to the shoes but it was another final we lost and the shoes were to blame on both occasions of course they were wow. that's amazing do you remember who that yeah. player was? <laughs> I, no <laughs> I don't so uh, I think it was Sterling who played or was coached at the Rocks for uh, two years or maybe just the one season before we moved into the city uh, to the Kelvin Hall. Um, how did that then all start coming about with obviously? Oh, okay. Yeah. So we, first of all, when we moved through from Edinburgh, we thought we'd be the Glasgow Rocks. But the shopping centre uh, and the mall were geographically half within Glasgow city boundaries and half within Renfrewshire city boundaries. Glasgow made a land grab, which went to government. The government said, no, you're not getting it all. We're giving it to Renfrewshire. So all of a sudden, it was kind of difficult politically to call ourselves Glasgow Rocks when we were in Renfrewshire, and it had been a big issue. So we, we went for it and decided to call ourselves the Scottish Rocks. And that played out really well for us later on, because when Glasgow approached us to play at a new arena, which they planned to build, they said, would you change your name to Glasgow? I said, yes, we can do that, and, you know, for a cost. And they paid for that. So that, that worked out quite well for us. So we were happy, happy um, to move out of um, Brayhead Arena because the ice didn't suit us. Um, <laughs> the ice is cold. So if you stop to think about it, we're putting our most valuable assets onto ice protected by a thin, load, thin, thin barrier of cardboard and whatever. 
Um, so the players didn't like it particularly, but not only that, we were putting our main sponsors and courtside boxes on top of ice and they were freezing as well. So second or third season there, um, we were approached by the arena and said, we're going to have to put the rent up substantially because the cost of developing ice is going up and all tenants need to share it. And we said, well, actually, no, we don't want to do that. Um, and that was at the time that Glasgow approached us to see if we'd move into Glasgow. So that's why we moved to the Calvin Hall and the smelly toilets um, in the interim until such times the Emirates was built. So that, that's the kind of story behind it, that move. Continual consistency, I suppose. Uh, I think in total for Sterling's reign, we had an average position of fifth place, um, which is, shows how consistent you always had. We always had good teams. We had seasons where we were up, seasons where we were down. Um, my memory of the Kelvin Hall was when the Athletics was always on next door. You'd always get a starter gun. Oh. <laughs> that, 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 that was all. That must have been horrendous. Imagine shooting a three-point shot when that was going off or whatever else. Yeah, well, the, 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 the other side of that was the athletics weren't happy with a sport that played music during the games. <laughs> well, true. Uh, and speaking of, of strange venues, there's one time um, we went down to Manchester and we actually played in the middle of the Manchester oh, Velodrome. Oh, wow. And there was whizzing by uh, yeah. during warm-up and I thought, well, they'll stop that when the game starts. But oh, no. They um, carried on with the cyclists going round outside and the motorbike pacing them <laughs> and the, the, fumes the fumes from the race, the motorbike coming down onto the court. So that, that was a bit of fun too. I think it was the last game of the season. Um, so it, it wasn't, it was an experience and it didn't matter. Maybe. So um, what did you feel of it? Like, uh, what did you think of the Kelvin Hall as a venue for this sport? I think a lot of fans have been around since then. Obviously, like the close, the closeness to the court. Yes. Um, what, what did you think of Kelvin Hall as a, as a, did you see a professional sport venue? Obviously, in the end, it was kind of falling to bits around you. Yeah, um, I, we quite liked it, um, but it was very cold, and we did a deal there whereby if the we had a courtside thermometer, <laughs> and if the if the temperature went below a certain level by one degree, we we only had to pay half the the let fee. So, <laughs> so almost, almost at the stage of saying, I wish it was a wee bit cold and I could save us money. I, I imagine, I'm, I imagine a lot of sports clubs, if people hear this, will go, that's a great <laughs> idea. That's how, we, that's how we can get our sport for cheap. Let's say it's too cold yeah. and we've got to yeah. change it more. Don't, don't go out to the ice hockey ground. There you go. <laughs> so then obviously, Eddie Kelvin Hall for a good number of years and then um, 2012 happens and the move to the Emirates. So how how much involvement did uh, you guys have in the kind of obviously putting in of the facility or getting it kind of set up for obviously being the new Rocks home? Yeah, we were, we were um, we were involved in the planning process from the get go. Um, they were very keen a to have us um, and b to make sure that the facility was good and adequate for basketball, which not all facilities do. There was a I'm kind of reminiscing a little bit, but there was an instance at Meadowbank where um, they decided that they, ne- they needed new uh, international class um, baskets, which were quite heavy. And they bought to, brought them in, I think, from Germany and put them in a container for six months until the season was over and then decided to change them. They then discovered that those were so big they couldn't actually 
get them into the hall. So they built a ramp and widened the doors. And as soon as they put, took them through the doors, the floor began to creak. They were too heavy for the floor. So the floor had to be replaced. So um, we were happy to be involved at the outset. And we uh, made sure that the floor at uh, the Emirates was strong enough to support. Oh, yes. And then the first game, of course. <laughs> the first game, full house, 5,000 people there. Um, all, all the hoi polloi, everything going great. And uh, halfway through second half, first half, can't oh, again, all the lights went out. <laughs> Every light in the place went out. Because they, pre, pre us going in, they'd had the lights on a timer and they forgot to change the timer. <laughs> so, not without incident. But, you know, all part of life's rich pattern. Absolutely. So, when we're talking about... Uh, any other kind of strange or interesting kind of recruitment stories from your time with the Rocks? Yeah, I think once upon a time we, we introduced, we, we, um, we recruited a player called Rock Winston. And a lot of the recruitment was based on, wouldn't that be a good name to have on the back of a jersey? <laughs> so Rock, Rock's an interesting character. I'll tell you a story about him. He, um, he was a great character. We really liked him. And he was a decent player, um, but he got injured and he was supposed to go to the physios and he didn't bother going to the physios and we were paying for the physio and he'd also borrowed some money from me. I mean, they used to say the shortest period of time known to man is the time between an American landing and him asking for money. Um, but Rock was of that ilk, so somehow or other he persuaded me to give him some money and he hadn't been going to the, the physio. So I decided, A, I wanted the money back, and B, we would charge him uh, for the missed physio appointment, which seemed reasonable to me. Uh, he then came up with this idea that, hey, Mr. Reid, um, I can play every position from one through to five, but he kind of almost could do. Um, and he said, so I should get more money, and if I get more money, I'll be able to pay you back quicker. I'm still thinking about that one. Well, he obviously didn't know your background then. <laughs> You're a hustler, yeah. Um, but I had, yeah. Wow, that's a good one. So when did, uh, obviously you guys come to a beginning to think, oh, maybe it's our end of tenure in the Rocks. What, what kind of got that ball rolling? Uh, how many years ago was it? Or when were you maybe trying to cut, like step back from the day-to-day? Yeah, well, I was fully involved with Scottish Sports Futures and I was fortunate enough to have a, a great team um, of people working at the Rocks who, who looked after looked after everything, really. Was, um, there were some notable people who were part of it, Grant. Um, and um, Daniel Bevelook, uh, to shout out to Daniel and to Matthew and to all of the others who were there that time, and Daniel Doom and all these guys. And with a load of brilliant volunteers as well who were devoted to the rocks, and I, I can't, you know, I can't let this pass without the opportunity of thanking them all. They're brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But um, I was retiring from the role of chief executive and founder of Scottish Sports Futures, and I was going to devote my time to the rocks um, and get back involved with that. And then along came an offer to buy my shares and that I just thought, you know what, um, I can do other stuff. And this is quite a lot of hassle and quite a lot of stress. I mean, I, I've, 
I have um, described my time with the rocks to you in a fairly light-hearted way. But there are dark times, um, and every club has gone through these dark times and worrying times. And I decided, actually, it's somebody else, somebody else's turn to enjoy the fun and the dark times. So it was a deal that was done quite quickly. Yeah, and I moved on. So looking back, can or is there any? Or- I'll go and touch on the subject. Any regrets? Anything you feel like you would have changed? Anything you would have done differently or think, oh, I could have done that better? Just generally? Um, generally, I think... Um, I, I do remember before we started Franchise being, I won't say lectured, but advised <laughs> by, the, by Kevin Routledge, who was vastly experienced in what could go wrong. And he he sat with my wife and I um, in a in a pub I think called a Swan just off the M6 somewhere in England maybe near Manchester, and he told us about everything that could go wrong and we sort of went yada 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 yada, and um, <laughs> sadly everything that he said came to pass and I wish I'd listened a little bit more carefully to what he said I, I wouldn't it wouldn't have changed my mind to go into basketball but I might have been a little more suspicious of some of the peripheral players. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, what about your most uh, proudest moments? Like, what do you think from 18 years or so that you're like, that's maybe not your crowning moment, but a couple of things that you'd say is like you're the most proud of? I think that um, winning the playoffs is a big thing for us um, and something that, you know, couldn't be taken away. I think that um, at the end on the Sky commentary, um, Robbie Pierce, um, mm. who was then coach at London or Cheshire, I can't, can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember where it was at the time, but he said coming into this weekend, there were four teams involved and we didn't know which one would win it, but we knew who wouldn't win it and we knew that. Cheshire could win, Chester could win it, we knew that Sheffield could win it, and we knew that um, Brighton could win it, but we all knew the Rocks wouldn't win it. (laughs) So I quite liked that, and I thank him for that comment, um, because he said he was pleased for us, and we were pleased for us as well. Um, But I think, yes, the, the, um, I think the best thing that happened out of the Rocks for me was the charitable work that we were able to do, Mm -hmm. um, and the contribution that um, the Rocks in those days um, made towards the charity the players were outstanding, well received, and the messages that they put across um, mm-hmm. stuck. Um, spontaneous recall of Rock's messages was very good. So I want to put you in a, maybe a tricky situation. I want you to try and name your top five favourite Rock's players of all time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess that Ted Betty's on the list, so you've got four more. Oh, man. That's, that's, that's a, it doesn't need to be a conventional one to five or whatever, just even if it's just... I, your- the best yeah. five guys you've worked with for the best. Players I liked. Can I tell you, the player I, I liked most of all who wasn't a rock, I think, over the years, Hope was Rico Alderson. Yeah, <laughs> I, I loved him. Uh, he's a bad boy, but my goodness, what a mercurial, instinctive, intuitive player he was. Yeah. So, um, Ted would be one. Billy Singleton would be another. <laughs> um, Can't just his... make the playoff team. Hmm? Can't no. just make the no, no, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, oh gosh. 
Too. I, 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 the rest are so good, I couldn't possibly choose between them. I would give a shout out to Sterling for his, his long service. I know he was in the playoff final, <laughs> but he was playing for Brighton at the time, so yeah. I think I've allowed to name him. Um, Sterling is just such a great servant to the rock. I'd also give a shout out to um, Gareth because Gareth worked so hard. Gareth. He, he didn't get paid a lot in the early days. He was a, a night porter in a hotel to, to top up his, his living wage. He washed cars for Phoenix. Um, he worked hard, worked hard and persevered, went abroad, came back, and now he's um, the new head coach at the Rock. So I really, I really hope it works out well for him. How yeah. is that? That's four. Wild card. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, somebody's going to kill me for this, but I really like Stefan Shekels. Uh, the way he shot, mind yeah. you, that was oh, he was a, he was in the playoff team. He didn't well, score. We just named the playoffs team, so I know pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's not to denigrate what came after, you know. With some so what about? Um, I'll maybe leave you thinking of maybe a couple more guys, but um, yeah. what with obviously I know you keep a close eye on things happening with the league and British basketball at the moment. Yeah. So what's obviously with the whole apparently the world stopped with COVID. Um, how do you, what do you think of that current situation, potential behind closed doors, looking for government support? Um, I think it's really difficult to get indoor sports with spectators introduced quickly. I think they'll have to go with outdoor sports first. Um, it's the outdoor sports with spectators has been successfully trialled. Um, I know that um, Boris doesn't like the mingling element of football. Um, but I think that has to go first. But I think if the government are going to support, as they said, they're going to do, I think, the national division in England, which is, I don't know, fourth, fifth year, something like that, um, with multiple millions, then they have also mentioned eight other sports, of which basketball is one, which I believe they would like to help. And they most certainly should, if not for the sport, itself for the value that the clubs contribute to their communities Absolutely. and to a particular sector of communities which um, need help like the inner city kids, the BME population um, and there are many, many clubs doing fantastic work and that should be supported. Okay. Uh, hopefully we get more positive news. Obviously the season's supposed to be starting this weekend. Um, I suppose the Rocks would have been in a massively disadvantaged place having to play outdoors probably. That wouldn't have been fun. But I think yeah. I think I seen it in France last weekend. They had fans allowed inside the arenas, so just have to wait and see. So yeah. final one Ian, uh, for people to or people listening to this, what's Ian read up to now? Um, well, I've done the garden. I've done the garden to death. I've painted the house. I'm <laughs> back to under my wife's tutelage. Um, cut the hedges, um, but I'm also um, chairman of St Mirren Football Club's charitable foundation, and we've been able to do some great work in um, delivering food to those most in need and to um, care homes in Zena too. So I get a great deal of satisfaction from enabling that charitable work to take place. That's it. Right. Have you got any more players you'd like to shout out for your five, your, your three-man lineup so far as Ted, Stefan Shekels and Billy <laughs> I don't. I can't. I can't single. I don't I think it's right. 
Um, but but all of the players who may or may not listen to this, it's you I'm thinking about. Much <laughs> <laughs> to Ian for coming on to the Rocks On podcast. I hope you all enjoyed that listen and look out for the next episode.